and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, thank you, band, for slaying me. That wasn't the band, was it? What you just experienced there, that was, that was the Holy Spirit. And, and I know it sounds like a little bit of a contradiction here, but, but this idea that the Holy Spirit is in this place all the time. And if you're a believer, he's in you all the time. But this why church is so important is when we worship God together. Zoom's not church. This is. This is. If you're watching online, we miss you. If you're having to watch because of COVID or you're out of town, like we miss you. But I tell you what, the Holy Spirit in this room is just as thick. You could cut it with a knife. And if you don't feel that right now, whew, something wrong with you. Well, let's, let's get this out. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Bent Tree Church. Um, my name is Paul. If you've never been here before, I, a, a very special welcome uh, with you. Uh, I'm just glad you're here. You can be turning to John chapter 3. We study God's Word uh, here, so go ahead and get your Bibles out, something to write with. Before we get into it, though, let me just give you a heads up. A really cool thing that we're about to do here. Well, we're already doing it. As you've heard me say before from day one of Bentry's vision, almost 12 years ago now, Bentry has this idea, this vision from God to raise men up and to be able to equip them and send them out to be pastors and leaders, men and women to be leaders and men to be pastors. But well, we're in the process of launching our first semester of what we've named the Pastoral Residency Program, Pastoral Residency Program. We'll tell you a lot more in coming weeks on that, but biblical training, leadership, practical experience, serving in ministry, and teaching guys how to preach, and giving them the opportunity to refine their skills as they preach at Bentry, in uh, Bentry services. With that in mind, this Wednesday night... This Wednesday, we begin a new series through the book of James, verse by verse. And when I say we'll be preaching, I mean these men who are learning how to preach will be preaching. Amen? This is going to be a cool thing. They will be preparing messages for these new Wednesday night services here at 7 p.m. And and I want to invite you to this service. I'll welcome it, uh, welcome you to the service, and then they'll preach a different guy, and they'll tag team those things. This week, uh, one of our service hosts, Chris Rothenberry, will be preaching this Wednesday, so come and uh, support him. I mentioned this uh, to you for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that I want you to be praying for these guys. Man, learning how to preach and teach the Bible is not an easy thing. Pray for their preparation, their families. Pray uh, for God to just to cover them with his Holy Spirit. And the second reason is that you may want to start coming on this Wednesday night hearing uh, the Word of God faithfully preached. They begin 7 p.m. Bring your Bible. Bring something to, to write with. I've heard them preach already. It is good on this. Is this cool or what? 
This is good. This is a good thing. Yeah, let's thank God for them. Yeah, come on, come on, come on, come on. This is good. Well, before we get started, let's go ahead and have just a time of uh, prayer before our preaching. And let's remember these guys as they get ready to, to preach. Would you bow your head? Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we just come to you in humble prayer. We we ask that you send your Holy Spirit into this room and into our hearts and minds. God, we want to hear from you. We want to know you more. Jesus, help me to decrease and you to increase in this place. We want to make much of you. Father God, we lift up our new Wednesday night service to you that we began this week, that you would just be glorified in that service and through these, the, the preaching of these men. We pray against any worries, fear. We pray just a hedge of protection around them, around their families. We pray that you help them prepare the message that you want us to hear. And Lord, our prayer for our church body is just to raise up believers and send them out into the world to, to spread the gospel. And God, I pray for those right now that just wherever they are, God, we just experienced this worship time, just incredible. But God, I know that there are people here from all over and watching that just may feel nothing. It may just be a coldness. God, help us to focus our attention. But Holy Spirit, would you just break through the worries, the thoughts, the coldness, the hard shell that maybe these people have developed? We thank you in advance for what you're going to do today. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen. Well, we're right here in the second half of John chapter 3. And last week we read the apostle John's narrative about John the Baptist, who we've already tried to differentiate as calling him kind of John the Baptizer, Baptizer, John the Baptizer, because John the apostle wrote the books, two Johns. We've looked at the story of the narrative John the Apostle wrote here in this baptizer's ministry and Jesus' ministry going on at the same time. You remember that? We said Jesus and John the baptizer's ministry overlapped at this, this juncture in Scripture. And I said that's important to understand, but I didn't tell you why it's important to understand. Today I'm going to attempt to do that. Because it's right here in Scripture that we see something going on behind this passage. It's so much bigger than we could have ever imagined. In fact, we're going to do something a little bit strange today. We usually take a verse or two and we look up close at that verse and we try to drill down into that verse. And we look at each verse in context and try to understand how this fits together with revealing God's character. But this week, I want to take a different approach. It's a 50,000 foot view approach. We're going to go high and we're going to go fast because I want to see something much bigger. And that is this little passage is showing us this overlap of Jesus and John the Baptist ministry bridging both the Old Testament and the New Testament right here. This is a big subject, and we're going to try to, to move quickly. I, I don't want to, you to miss any of it, but this is cosmic. I use that in the right term. It's, it's giant. Because what you're going to see today, I, I hope, is this plan, the plan of God to bring salvation, not just with the birth of Jesus, but that plan all the way back at the beginning of creation. Let me see if I can say it another way. 
Have you ever heard someone say, well, I don't really understand the God of the Old Testament? Raise your hand if you've ever said that or heard someone say that. They say something like, because it seems like the God of the New Testament is all grace and forgiveness and, and just the God of the Old Testament, he seems ticked off. Like he's always angry, ready for wrath. And maybe you've thought like that yourself. Like the Bible is somehow two different books. But, but what I hope to show you is that the Old Testament and the New Testament is one story. It's the story of God. In fact, what I hope to show you today is in the scripture, there is a red, crimson, blood-stained line that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This is an important story of Jesus. The blood and the plan of redemption is in the entire book, and you've got to see it. Well, would you stand with me if you can in reverence as we read our text for today? Here it is. Here it is. John chapter 3, verse 29. This is John the baptizer. He says, he who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Praise God for his word. Amen. You may be seated. Right here. We see the welding together of two parts of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is where they meet. Write this down. In the overlap of John the Baptist's ministry, the ministry ending, and Jesus' ministry beginning, we see a picture of the Old and New Covenant. You don't have to understand this yet. We're going to explain it. But in the overlap of John the Baptist's ministry ending and Jesus' ministry beginning, we see a picture of the old and the new covenant. The Bible is the story of God, we just said. It is the God who is revealing himself in these pages, his character, what he's like. And what I want us to see is it's a progressive revelation, each part building on the last A progressive revelation of God is kind of like being in a vast, dark room with a little candle. All you can see is right around you. At first, that dim light you have, you see a little bit. You begin to see things in the room that are up close to you. But there's giant shadows out there that you can see far off. The Bible's like that, starting in Genesis. You see those things far off faintly. But as the light begins to grow to two candles and three, God begins to reveal himself more and the light starts to reveal the dark room. You go, oh, let me see if I can give a brief overview of what I mean here. Let's look at what Jesus talked about with the Old Testament and the law of God that the Old Testament contains. Look what Jesus himself said in Luke 16, verse 16. He said, the law and the prophets were until John. He's talking about the baptizer. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. John the Baptist is this last prophet of what we think of as the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. 
in a sense, John the baptizer represents the old covenant. That's why we have said that he is really more akin to guys like Elijah or Moses compared to the apostle Paul. But even though John the baptizer seems like he should be in the Old Testament, we find him right here in John. We find him right here at the dawn of the new covenant. It's where these things go together. No accident. Now, what is the new covenant? We'll get to it more in just a moment, but it is what we talk about all the time here. It is the story of salvation through Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The gospel. But what we need to know is that Jesus is the one who ushers in the new covenant. To show you what we mean here, look at Luke chapter 22, verse 20. This is taking place the night of the Last Supper. Jesus has just given his disciples the bread. He's broken it. He said, take this, eat it. It's my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. But then watch close what he says in verse 20. He says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Did you catch that? It's the new covenant. His blood seals the new covenant. Here's what we see in this overlap of John and Jesus. If John the Baptist represents the old covenant coming to an end, but pointing then to the new covenant. Write this down. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant which he establishes with his sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead. There's a lot there. I'm going to give you a moment to write it down. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, which he establishes with his sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead. Both those things are important. Now, please get this. Jesus' sacrificial death dealt with our sin if we're in Christ Jesus. But if his death on the cross were the end of the story, well then, all that does is take our sin back to zero. And we would have to start over all again under the law and we would screw it up again. But what we have to see here is that it's also Jesus' resurrection from the dead that guarantees our justification. Look what the Apostle Paul says here. Now, I put faith in red here. It's talking about it. It, faith. Romans 4, 24. It will be credited to us who believe in him. Who is him? Jesus. Who raised Jesus from our Lord from the dead. So him is God here. Believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses, the sin, and then watch, and raised for our justification. Oh, we see our sins paid for at the cross of Christ and our justification before God at Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So if John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets under this old covenant system and he and all those prophets before are pointing to Jesus as this new mediator of a new covenant that Jesus establishes with his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead, what are we saying is this. This passage at the end of John chapter 3 is the old covenant and the new covenant welded together. Now, 
what we see from John is that his ministry, the baptizer's ministry, begins to wind down, doesn't it? We looked at that last week. John had found his purpose. He'd lived it out. But fewer people are following the baptizer now. And he says, I must decrease. Jesus must what? Increase. So what is the old covenant? Now, why is it important to know and understand what the old covenant is? There's some pastors that'll go, I don't need the Old Testament. We should just focus on the new. I go, no, it's one story. If you do that, you're missing the giant picture here. Let me take you on a quick high-level tour of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, or what we sometimes call the law and the prophets, or simply the law. Here's what we mean. The Old Testament contains the story of God creating mankind and God choosing, uh, choosing mankind, creating him, and then mankind choosing sin over God. It tells the story of God setting in motion then a rescue mission for a people that he would choose. Now watch this. God chooses these people, or another way to say it, he elects people. That's the word the Bible uses. Some of you struggle with that word. That's the word the Bible uses. He elects some of the people called the Hebrews and called the Israelites, the Jews. He elects them for himself. And, and what does God say that he establishes the covenant with these people? Why? He calls them to be holy. Holy means simply set apart for special use. He gives his law to his people. It's a moral rule that he tells them to live by. A moral compass of right and wrong. Now that's the big picture, okay? Let's drill down into that. How does the old covenant begin? Well, like we studied a few weeks ago, that covenant really had its beginnings way back in Genesis chapter 1 with Adam and Eve, the very first man and woman. Remember the dim light we talked about, the little candle in the room. This is the first flicker of the light that we see way back in Genesis chapter 1. Although Adam and Eve break that covenant with God and his law and eat the forbidden fruit, God continues his direction to them and future generations. The next place we see the old covenant in scripture is with Noah, just after the flood waters, and they go away and they leave the ark. God renews that old covenant with Noah. The light then starts to get brighter when God calls a man named Abram to follow him to a new land he's never been to. Now watch how God calls Abram. This is fascinating. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. This is huge. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Underline especially, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God reveals this covenant that was already in place He makes the flame brighter with this guy, Abram, whom God would rename Abraham. Notice that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through this Abraham. That would include you, wouldn't it? You're a people of the earth. It would include me. Now, why are you blessed through Abraham? 
This is where the light really starts to burn brighter in the Old Testament for us and starts to reveal God. Because of this old covenant, God establishes, God raises up a people through the offspring of Abraham, a nation, a people for himself called the Jews or the Hebrews. And it's through these people, the Hebrews, that God sets aside for himself the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ who would come. And he does, Jesus is born a descendant of Abraham through, not Joseph, Mary. That's the earthly part of Jesus' heritage. That's why we say he is truly man. Jesus is truly man. And of course we teach that he's also the son of God. So he's truly the son of God as well. Think about Abraham for just a moment. God calls this man who doesn't know God. He doesn't know where he's going. In fact, God says, I'll even show you the land, but I'm not going to tell you where it is yet. God calls Abraham to be his own. He elects him. He chooses him to start this people. Not because Abraham was a good guy or better than others. No, God simply chooses him. God elects Abraham for his own purpose. Where we see Abraham's faith demonstrated in what God says is a few chapters later in Genesis 15, verse 6. Look, look at this. Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Just a reminder here, how are the people of God in the Old Testament saved? How do they miss hell and go to heaven? It says right here. The answer, it's the same way we are, by grace, through faith, and that faith is not from them, it is a gift from God. In other words, the people of God believed in faith to the promise of God that in the future he would send a rescue mission named the Messiah, the Christ, that would atone for all their sins. We Christians believe the same thing, but only backward to that point. Does that make sense? We still believe in Jesus Christ, him coming, dying on a cross to pay for our sins. They believe forward, we believe backward to the same event. As Abraham's descendants grow numerous into a nation, they're taken captive into the land of Egypt. As you know the story of the Hebrews, they cry out to God, they're under slavery, and God rescues them by calling or choosing, or what's the other word? Electing Moses. It's just a dude, not particularly a good dude. A murderer, in fact. With the story of Moses, we see the light become much brighter of who God is. God begins to reveal his character by giving his law to his people, the Hebrews. God then leads the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert. You remember that? He saves them, but then God gives them the law. Remember Charlton Heston, for you old guys? I kind of look like him, I come to think of it. Bringing the Ten Commandments down from the mountain. The law of God is given as this comprehensive set of rules to ensure that the Israelites behave in such a way that it shows the rest of the world this is God's people set aside to be holy. This is all part of the old covenant. Other than the command of God to Adam and Eve to not eat the forbidden truth uh, fruit back in Genesis, this is where the first law is given to his people. 
through Moses. The law that God gives his people through Moses has three big parts. I want you to write these down. Listen, even if you don't take notes usually, you go, I got it up here. You're like that waitress that goes, I got it. It never gets the order right. Go ahead and write this down. This is going to be important. I want you to get this because this is so important in understanding the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and how it relates to the New Covenant, the New Testament. Now, God gives his people three kinds of laws. Count them. One, two, three. How many laws? Three. All right. Here it is. Number one, God gave the Hebrew people the moral law. God gave the people the moral law. The moral law is about God's holy nature. So this law is unchanging. Why? Because God's nature is unchanging. God does not change. In other words, this is the law of right and wrong. It does not change. The goal of these laws is to give the people of God a solid foundation. In other words, as the people of God obey these laws, it will keep them in line with God's character. The moral law has these very specific regulations on justice and holiness and respect, sexual conduct, what you can and can't do. You know these laws. They're summed up in the Ten Commandments. You have never, if you've never noticed these laws, they do either one of two things. One, they show us how to relate to God or the Ten Commandments show us how to relate to each other. That's what they do. So if the first set of laws is the moral law of right and wrong, the second law is this. God gave the Hebrew people the ceremonial law. God gave the people the ceremonial law. Just like the name says, this is the ceremony. It's a show. It's a, the second set of laws are really like what we can think of as pointing a person's thoughts to God through ceremony. You tracking? Or another way to say it is you keep these laws. A person would have to look at the reason they're keeping these laws. And that is to remind them, the Hebrew people, uh, of God in their everyday lives. How they lived. In their everyday activities. From eating and drinking. Everything. These laws are like how to remember God's work in Israel's history. Things like feasts and festivals and holidays. They also include very specific regulations meant to distinguish the Israelite people from all other pagan nations. This is what makes them holy. And when I say these laws get specific, it gets down right to what kinds of fabric you can use to wear. Like you can't mix that with that. Why? Because I said so. So you'll watch me. Now, this is cool. When you study all the ceremonial law in depth, and we have at points, all of these point to Jesus' coming. Every single one of them. Things like keeping the Sabbath, circumcision, the Passover meal, the redemption of the firstborn. All of that is the coming of the promised one, That's what you say, the the anointed one, the, the Messiah, or in Greek, we say Christ. But then the third set of laws is this. God gave the Hebrew people the judicial slash civil law. God gave the Hebrew people a judicial, as in judges, and judgment, and civil law as the nation of Israel. 
These civil laws were specifically given to the Israelites in regards to their culture and practice and the place they lived. These laws encompass the other two sets of laws, ceremonial and moral. But they do it in such a way that they include how all of the laws should be adjudicated, judged. Who administers these laws? What are the the people of uh, God? How are they judged? Who judges? These laws show the elect and, uh, and what happens if a person breaks the laws. The punishments, the judgments, who decides all of that stuff? Now, for our kind of civilization, think of our laws today. We basically have criminal law and civil law. So look at this. These laws covered criminal like murder, stealing, and they also would cover civil laws like lawsuits or tort. And someone has been, when someone has been wronged by someone else, God gives the Israelites these set of laws. Moral, ceremonial law, judicial slash civil. So what have we seen so far? God is slowly, progressively revealing himself in the Bible and he is also revealing the old covenant. The light is increasing for the Hebrew people. What we call the old covenant has been revealed to Adam. By the way, we call that the Adamic covenant, that part of the covenant. To Noah, or we call it the Noahic covenant. You see how I'm, what I'm doing there? He reveals the same covenant a little bit more. The Abrahamic covenant for Abraham. He reveals even more than Moses. And you can probably guess what that one's called, right? The Mosaic covenant. You see what I'm doing? Now, although this is still the same old covenant, this Mosaic covenant has this provision in it. God says, I'll do this if you keep my law. The other ones don't have that. What I'm saying is that the other covenants revealed were unconditional, but this one with the law was conditional. But what do we know about our ability as a sinful people to keep the law? We can't do it. Why? We're fallen, original sin. We're born into it. Put that aside for just a second. God reveals his covenant to another man in the Old Testament. Uh, He renews this covenant, the old covenant, to a great king, King David. And yes, that covenant is also called the Davidic covenant, still all those part of the same covenant. But the problem from all the way back to Adam and Eve right through the end of the time with John the baptizer is that God's people cannot keep the law. As we studied before, because of original sin, people can't keep the law. So even though God keeps his end of the bargain, he never fails, not even once. The people always end up breaking their end of the covenant. That's the entire Old Testament right through John the Baptist. Now, this doesn't surprise God. Nothing's ever surprised God. He's God. He knows that we, as sinful people, cannot keep our end of the, go- the covenant. Why? We're sinful. We're fallen. We have no ability. So God says this to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31, God says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. On the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. By the way, when you see the Lord's declaration, that's a seal, a royal seal. Boom. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Boom. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching with them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Praise God. This is the new covenant. 700 years before it actually arrives. 750 years. He comes and saying that the new covenant, a new way to connect to God. You won't connect to me through a priest anymore, God says. You will know me. The law won't be written on a piece of stone. It will be written on your heart. What is the new covenant? It's Jesus. The gospel story. God coming to earth personally to save mankind. A rescue mission. The new covenant is what Jesus is talking about at the Last Supper. The new covenant is what? Sealed with his blood. Now the new covenant is the, that God himself would come in the flesh, the second member of the Trinity, because both as God and man, he could be a mediator between God and man. This is not God's plan B. Jesus comes to save us, not because his original plan failed. He planned it this way. Is this making sense? I know this is a lot. Hang tight with me. So why did God just begin, why didn't he just begin with the new covenant? Why did he bring the old covenant? Have you ever thought that? Why can't we just start with the new testament? Because what the old covenant did was to show us To demonstrate to us and prove once and for all that God is faithful and we are not. It stands as testimony against us. And not only are we not faithful in our natural sinful state, we simply have no ability to be faithful without him. Or in other words, the Old Covenant in all its revelations uh, presented in the Old Testament show us that we need a Savior. Because with the law and the Old Covenant, here's what we've got to see. Here it is. There is no salvation or forgiveness of sin in the other covenants of the Old Testament. There is no salvation or forgiveness of sin in the other covenants of the Old Testament. I don't want to confuse you, but let me see if I can boil some things down here for us. It's simply a way to think of this. It's a framework for us to think through this. Sometimes people call this covenant theology. It's really synonymous with reformed doctrine, reformed theology. Here's what we preach. There are three overarching covenants. The covenant of redemption... The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. I'll give you a second to write it down. Understand this. 
There are three overarching covenants. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. The covenant of redemption was among the persons of the Godhead, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father decrees it. God the Son procures it. God the Spirit applies it. That's the covenant of redemption. The covenant of works, though, was between God and our first parents, Adam and Eve. You can find that covenant in Genesis 1.28. When God says to man, he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over everything. Again, you find it in Genesis 2, verse 15. Cultivate and keep and guard the garden. Obey the, the one law that God gave them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our ancestors failed that second covenant. Then there's the covenant of grace, the third covenant. It was initiated after the fall way back in Genesis chapter 3 with the promise of the seed of the woman would bruise Satan's head while her heel would be bruised by the serpent. Theologians call this the Latin term proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. It's the flicker of the very first candle of the gospel. Are you with me? All the other Old Testament covenants that I mentioned, Abrahamic, Noahic, Mosaic, Davidic, and ultimately the new covenant all go in this line building on each other. And, And you read the Old Testament and they are progressive fulfillments of what? The last one, the covenant of grace. Again, the light is starting to burn so bright here, revealing more and more of who God is. And what the Bible makes really clear is that this new covenant under Jesus, this new testament, uh, is not merely a revision of the old covenant. No, it's something brand new, completely different, a compilation of, uh, or a completion of, or a fulfillment of all the other Old Testament covenants. Right here. Only in the new covenant of grace can salvation be found in Christ Jesus. Only in that third one can salvation be found. In Christ Jesus. Why is that? Well, because we are sinful. We're under Adam, the original sin that we talked about a few weeks ago. The old covenant was unable to justify anyone. Or another way to say that after the fall of man into sin, it was not possible for us to not sin. But what the law did was to point to the coming Savior, Jesus, through whom we sinners could be reconciled back to God. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul puts this. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Now let's tie this all back into the overlap of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry. What the people of God, we call the Israelites, did in the Old Testament time was to make an error in assuming that the Old 
covenant, and specifically the Mosaic covenant, the law that was given through Moses in Exodus 19, was somehow a means of salvation itself when that was never its intent. The old covenant's central message was one of setting God's people apart that we would be holy. To give these people holiness and love for God and man. In fact, look what Jesus says to his scribe about the law in Mark 12, verse 28. One of the scribes approached when he had heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. But what had happened to the Israelites and their error by the time that Jesus came to earth is that the people had made the law into something it was never intended to be. They had taken the law that had been given to man for a way for us to love our mankind, love God, serve God, and they had changed the meaning and the keeping of the law as some kind of external religion, superficial rules of morality. There was no love for mankind, no real holiness, only a picture of it. The law for the people of Israel during the time of John the Baptist had disintegrated and become this mechanical ceremony of legalistic ritualism. Like if I do this one thing, that means God has to do this. I pull this lever, God has to do that for me. By the way, you see a lot of churches do that now. The moralistic law was never intended to be a means of justification before a holy God. No. The purpose of the law is to convict us of sin. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Romans 3.19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Boy, underline that. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. What the, the law did, what the Old Testament did, was to drive us to faith alone in Christ alone. He's the only one that can save us. You might ask, well, I'd understand why the law was even given. If it can't save us, why was it given? Again, the, the apostle Paul puts it in beautiful words. He comes to our rescue. He says in Galatians 3, 19, he says, why then was the law given? There's the question. He says, it was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, look at the capital S, who's that talking about? Jesus, right? Until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, contrary to God's purposes? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. 
But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power. This is huge. It captured us. So that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified through faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer, longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Someone say amen. Praise God. This is big. Is this making sense? Is it going over your head? Look at this. Look at this. Look up here. The law can't save us. A set of rules cannot save us. But what the law did was to show us that only Jesus can save us. By the way, that's why so many churches have fallen into a set of rule keeping. Just keep this and then if I keep the rules good enough, then God has to save me. The great news we have in the new covenant or, or, or what we call this covenant of grace through Christ Jesus is that like the apostle Paul says in, in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because... The law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now check that out, brothers and sisters. That last phrase. The reason there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus is that if we are in Christ Jesus, if we believe in Him as Savior and Lord, if we have our faith, He has paid the price for our sin. He bore the condemnation that you and I deserve on his back. And he has given us his righteousness. Now look at verse 3 again. Romans 8. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. The law was holy and righteous and just and reflecting the character of God. The problem with the law was that it lacked the power to enable us to keep that the law because of our sin, our weakness. This is what I mean as John the Baptizer's ministry is starting to come to the end. He's pointing to Jesus and the new covenant and the freedom from sin that we can only find in Christ Jesus. So where does that leave us? Are we free from the law or not? Or are we, we are not under the law as a means of justification. But that does not mean that we are free to ignore the law. That is, if we are saved through faith in Christ Jesus. Does that mean that we don't have to follow the law? Well, if we are not under the law and its penalty for our sin, Jesus said this in Matthew five seventeen. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill Make sure you get this. The law was not abolished. It was fulfilled. 
by Jesus. He met the requirements of the law by living a holy, perfect life on earth, never sinning once following the law. So what happens to the law? Look in verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Apparently not all things are accomplished yet. Wait. If the law is not over us as punishment, and at the same time it's not going away until all things are accomplished, Jesus accomplishes his task. He fulfills the law in his perfect, sinless life, his death, his resurrection. Listen, Jesus fulfills the law as our representative, the second Adam in his perfect, sinless life, his atoning death validated by his resurrection, proving he's God. Please understand. Please understand. Look up here. Look up here. Ultimately, we are saved by works. You go, Paul, no, 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 we're saved by grace. No, yes, that's right. But ultimately, we're saved by works. Listen, just not our works. The works of Christ Jesus, his righteousness credited to our account. You see? So what do we do with the law? Now we're not under it. And he's, he's taking care of it. How do we interact with the law as believers? Well, think of those three sets of laws in the Old Testament. What are they? Moral laws, ceremonial law, and judicial slash civil law. Listen, moral law still in effect. It is written on our hearts, right and wrong. The moral law shows us how to relate to God and to our fellow mankind. As Christians, we hold to the moral law not to save us, but because we are saved and we love God, that law shows us how to live. But the ceremonial law and the judicial law, like the purification rituals and the sacrificial system and the, that the Hebrew people were under, those laws have gone away. Why is that? Because they all pointed to Jesus, the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws all pointed to Jesus. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled them. Even the Jewish people who have not yet followed Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord can't really practice much of the old laws. Why? Because in AD 70, the Romans destroyed their system. The temple no longer exists. We don't have to follow them. Praise God. Praise God we don't have to follow the old laws because I like cheeseburgers. I like bacon. Can I get an amen? The ceremonial laws and the judicial laws have served their purpose and we are no longer to adhere to those laws. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 3, 24. He says, the law then was our guardian until Christ. So that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through, through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament, we're under the law of judgment, but not now. We keep the moral law today, now, because we love God. And it is life in keeping it. If you sum up the law, I mean the Ten Commandments, they all point to two things. Remember? Showing us either how to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, or love our neighbors as ourselves. 
And remember, when Jesus is asked by the scribe, what commandment of the moral law is the most important, what does Jesus say? What does he say? Matthew 22, he says this. We looked at it in Mark before. Let's look at it in Matthew. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. The moral law now is this beautiful thing that points out for Christians how to love God and how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Do you see how the Old Testament and the New Testament go together? And the connection is right here with John the Baptist and Jesus, their ministry overlapping just for these few weeks. As we move through the Gospel of John, we're going to see the new covenant, the new covenant of grace burns even brighter. That dark room is getting brighter, isn't it? Well, in two weeks, we'll conclude our study of John the Baptist teaching uh, right here. Next week, we've got something very special for you, a very special message. I'm going to uh, bring, believe it or not, this is not part of our series. It's, I'm going to do a standalone message, but I think you're going to find it very timely for what you're facing with all of the world that you're living on here. So don't miss it, and it's perfect chance to invite people um, to visit Bentry. But I want to leave you today with this judgment. Do you remember oh, this thought? Not judgment, sorry. Do you remember uh, earlier today when we read Genesis chapter 12? You remember that? When God calls Abraham, God tells him, I'm going to make you a great nation out of you. I want to make you into this great nation. He says, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And the people are blessed through Abraham because it was through his family lineage that God brought about the birth, the ultimate light, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this scripture, we, the light just ever increasing. God, give us a love for your word to understand even at the most basic level that your revelation is continuing And it burns brightly in Christ Jesus. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that you would reveal your character to them through your words and through living and serving with each other. God, thank you for these words that you have given us. It is in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.